Hello, this is episode 23 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Before getting into the main story of this episode, I feel I need to explain my absence to my loyal listeners. A couple of factors led me to put this podcast on hiatus in 2020. Like many people, the pandemic and the beginning of lockdown in early 2020 threw everyday life into a state of flux. Suddenly, my kids were at home full-time and attending school virtually, while I assumed the roles of a principal, guidance counselor, IT support, and attendance officer. As a result, researching and writing for this podcast took a backseat to figuring out life in the pandemic. Also, a year of researching and writing this podcast had taken its toll. The research for this podcast is not exactly light reading. Every story involves someone being assaulted, maimed, murdered, or terrorized. Most have sad endings. After a year of producing two episodes a month, I decided I needed a break from it all for the sake of my mental health. I was burned out, and I was dealing with a low-grade depression at the time, and decided to focus on lifting myself out of it. However, I've been inspired to take up the podcast again in recent months at a somewhat less frenetic pace. I've decided that sometimes less is more. So instead of producing two episodes a month, I'm dialing it back to one episode per month, with occasional bonus episodes from here on out. I hope my listeners will understand. It seems appropriate that the hiatus, which began after episodes 21 and 22 concerning the death of Ahmaud Arbery, should end with an update on the case. So check out those two episodes for background details on the case. Ahmad Arbery, an unarmed black man, was chased down, cornered, and killed near Brunswick, Georgia, by white vigilantes on February 23, 2020, while jogging through a white neighborhood. The men who killed the 25-year-old Arbery claimed they thought he was a burglar after allegedly spotting him looking around a house under construction in the community. Arbery's murder became national news because one of his alleged murderers, 52-year-old William Roddy Bryan, recorded the pursuit and killing on his smartphone. Bryan claimed he merely used his truck to help chase down and corner Arbery. The other defendants, 67-year-old Greg McMichael and his son Travis McMichael, 35, are seen confronting Arbery in an attempt to perform a citizen's arrest in an encounter that ends with Arbery dead after three gunshots. 
Initially, local law enforcement took no action against Brian or the McMichaels, likely because Greg McMichaels was a former county police officer and a former investigator for the district attorney's office. Authorities deemed the white men's actions justified under Georgia's citizen's arrest law. Even though the McMichaels didn't see Arbery do anything more suspicious than jog through their neighborhood. More than two months would pass before authorities took action. Then, in early May 2020, a Brunswick radio station obtained the video and posted it online. The video went viral, raising a public outcry. Governor Brian Kemp called the video absolutely horrific and urged the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to get involved in the case. GBI agents arrested both the McMichaels and Brian just weeks before the killing of George Floyd, another unarmed black man, by police officers, plunged the nation into turmoil. It's unlikely the arrests would have happened without the video or the Internet's ability to spread it far and wide so quickly. Outrage over Arbery's death led to some significant changes. After more than a decade without one on the books, the Georgia General Assembly approved a new hate crimes law. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed it into law on the last day of the 2020 legislative session. We saw injustice with our own eyes, Kemp said when he signed the bill. Georgians protested to demand action, and state lawmakers rose to the occasion. The law enhances penalties for those who commit crimes based on race, gender, sexual orientation, and other identifiable characteristics. The defense was expected to argue that Brian and the McMichaels were attempting to make a citizen's arrest under Georgia state law at the time. The three claimed they thought Arbery was a burglar and chased him in two pickup trucks through the primarily white Brunswick suburb of Santilla Shores. During a Sunday afternoon jog, Arbery was said to have entered an unoccupied house under construction. The property owner said nothing was taken, and Arbery just likely stopped to get a drink of water. Arbery's family said they believed the three men were suspicious of him because he was black. In a statement to investigators, Brian noted that Travis McMichael cursed Arbery using a racial slur as he stood over his body. Citizen's arrest is a big part of our case, a big part. Kevin Guff, a lawyer for Brian, said in an interview before the judge presiding over the murder trial in Glynn County Superior Court issued a partial gag order. They changed the law, but changing the law doesn't affect us. It doesn't change what was the law of the land at the time. The citizen's arrest law passed in 1863, when Georgia was a part of the slaveholding Southern Confederacy during the Civil War. The law was virtually unchanged since its passage and was repealed following public outcry over Arbery's death. The law allowed citizens to arrest another if they knew a crime was committed. Unfortunately, the men who pursued Arbery to his death 
didn't witness him doing anything suspicious or observe him committing a crime. The ACLU and other organizations that successfully sought to repeal the law argued that it was initially passed to enable the capture of escaped slaves. The Georgia chapter argued that the law was an example of systemic racism and empowered mobs that lynched black people in more than 500 cases recorded in Georgia between 1882 and 1968. Upon the repeal of the law, Governor Brian Kemp said the law was ripe for abuse and that Arbery was the victim of vigilante-style violence that has no place in Georgia. Kemp signed the repeal into law with Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, at his side. The General Assembly replaced the law with language narrowing the circumstances in which a citizen may detain another. As the public outcry over Arbery's murder intensified, the actions of district attorneys also drew scrutiny, leading to new support for statewide oversight, a debate over balancing prosecutor accountability with independence, and criminal charges for one district attorney who called Bryant and the McMichaels' pursuit of Arbery completely justified. Arbery's death fueled calls for a state commission to investigate prosecutor misconduct. In addition, the Georgia State Bar backed rule changes allowing officials to pull law licenses over prosecutorial ethics violations instead of merely handing out reprimands. In September, a grand jury indicted Jackie Johnson, the district attorney who first handled the case of Arbery's murder on violation of oath of office, a misdemeanor, and obstruction of a police officer, a felony. The indictment says that Johnson violated her oath of office by showing favor and affection to Greg McMichael during the investigation into the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. McMichael was an investigator in Johnson's office until he retired in 2019. Court documents also state that Johnson directed law enforcement officers not to arrest Travis McMichael. Johnson later recused herself because of her connection to Greg McMichael. Waycross Judicial Circuit District Attorney Greg Barnhill then took over the case. Johnson was voted out of office amid backlash after Arbery's killing. Johnson has denied any wrongdoing. In a letter to the Glenn County Police Department, Barnhill justified the actions of the McHales and Bryan based on Georgia's citizen arrest and self-defense law. But to use those laws as justification, the McMichaels and Bryan would have needed knowledge that Arbery was involved in a crime. They had no such knowledge. Barnhill wrote, We do not see grounds for an arrest of any of the three parties. Family and supporters of Arbery are also calling for an investigation into Barnhill's involvement in the case. Barnhill also had to step away from the case because his son had previously worked with Greg McMichael in the Brunswick Prosecutor's Office. In April 2020, 
The case was transferred to District Attorney Tom Durden. A month later, following the public response to the video of Arbery's death, Durden asked if the case could be reassigned again. Cobb County District Attorney Joyette Holmes then took over the case. Following the November 2020 elections, Flynn Brody Jr. took over the case. Racism already loomed large in the trial of Brian and the McMichaels as the jury selection process began on October 18th and ran for more than two weeks. It is a lived experience for black people in America that we can never take for granted that a white person will be convicted for killing a black person, no matter how much evidence we have. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who represented the Avery family, said during an October 18th press conference. Potential jurors questioned during the selection process said that Arbery was racially profiled, singled out due to his color, and targeted for being a black person who was thought to have been stealing things by the men who pursued and shot him. Nevertheless, Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley deemed the jurors qualified to remain in the jury pool. The statements were made in response to blunt questioning by prosecutors and defense attorneys. Their queries elicited some pointed answers. The whole case is about racism, one woman identified only as potential juror 199 said Thursday in the courtroom. She said the three men charged with murder hunted him down and killed him like an animal. If I'm honest, if it was completely reversed and the three men were black and the victim were white, they would have been arrested immediately. Another potential juror, number 571, told attorneys during questioning. However, the judge also found her qualified to remain in the jury pool. The comments could have spelled trouble for defense attorneys who had argued for dismissing potential jurors who saw Arbery as a victim of racism. Another prospective juror, number 72, told the attorneys, if it was a white guy running through the neighborhood, I don't think he would have been targeted as a suspect. Under Georgia law, potential jurors cannot be automatically disqualified for preconceived ideas about a case, so long as they pledge to set those opinions aside and remain fair and impartial as they hear the trial evidence. If defense attorneys believe the jury pool is likely biased against them, they can ask the judge to halt the jury selection and move the trial. Otherwise, both sides have a limited number of strikes that allow them to cut jurors they deem unfavorable. The video of Arbery's death became an issue in the jury selection process. The vast majority of the potential jurors interviewed by the trial judge and attorneys had seen the video at least once. Many of them had remained in the pool from which the jury would be chosen because they said they could be impartial and render decision based on courtroom evidence. 
Defense attorneys pushed to dismiss some potential jurors who expressed strong reactions to the video. However, Prosecutor Linda Donikowski dismissed the defense's concern that those horrified by the video couldn't be impartial and should be rejected. I don't know if I'd want a juror who doesn't have an emotional response to watching a video of someone being killed, Donikowski said. She argued that a potential juror's exposure to the video was irrelevant because he's going to be shown that video repeatedly during this trial. University of Texas law professor Jeffrey Abramson said that pretrial exposure to the video was of little concern. When you have what appears to be highly incriminating evidence, and there's been a period of time where it went viral, people not only saw it, but talked about it and shared opinions with family and friends, Abramson said. The mere fact they're going to see it again is hardly enough to undo whatever settled damage it's done already. On November 3rd, a jury was selected from a pool of around 50 qualified candidates out of nearly 200 summoned for jury duty. Of the 12 jurors, 11 were white and one was black. The prosecution challenged the defense attorney's striking of eight potential black jurors. Each of the three defense teams representing the McMichaels and Bryan were given eight strikes for a total of 24 and used them to eliminate 11 of 12 potential black jurors. The prosecution was given 12 strikes. All were used to exclude white potential jurors. Prosecutors argued that many of the defense's strikes were made solely on the basis of the would-be juror's race, which the defense attorneys denied. Judge Walmsley said there appeared to be intentional discrimination in the jury selection. However, Walmsley said that state law limited his authority to intervene because the defense stated non-racial reasons for excluding black potential jurors. They've been able to explain to the court why, separate from race, those individuals were in fact struck from the panel. After being hunted down, cornered, and shot for being a black man in a white Georgian neighborhood, Ahmaud Arbery is again being denied justice, said civil rights attorney Ben Crump. His killer's fate will be decided by a nearly all-white jury. A jury should reflect the community, Crump said. Glenn County, Georgia, where the trial took place, is more than 25% black. Janelle Ross, writing for Time, noted that structural factors that could lead to less representative juries were in play in Glenn County. There, as in other parts of the country, white residents are more likely to own homes less likely to move often, and therefore easier to reach by mail with a jury summons. Compounding the problem are policing practices and the fact that individuals currently on probation or parole, including for minor offenses, cannot serve on Georgia juries. Black Glynn County residents make up almost 27% of that area's population, meaning that a racially representative jury would include three black people, 
but about 53% of those are on probation or parole. In an interview with Ross, Samuel Summers, chair of the Tufts University Department of Psychology, noted that there's evidence that a juror's race and ethnicity is to some degree predictive of their general tendencies. There are data that suggest white jurors more generally across cases are more conviction-prone, more prosecution-friendly than black jurors in many instances, regardless of what kind of case we're talking about, Summer said. Juries that are all predominantly white, judging a black defendant in a case with a white victim, historically are fairly punitive. Noting that the trial over Arbery's death is a kind of reversal, a predominantly white jury judging white defendants accused of murdering a black victim, Summers admitted the unpredictability of the jury process. Still, he wasn't necessarily hedging his bets on an outcome. But sure, in the abstract, if you give me 2,000 cases with a white defendant and a black victim and 1,000 cases tried with an all-white jury and 1,000 cases tried with a racially diverse jury, I'm going to bet there's more convictions from the racially diverse 1,000 juries than from all the white 1,000 juries, all things being equal. Paige Pate, a local defense attorney not connected to the case, said, For black Glynn County residents, there's a strong likelihood you either knew Ahmaud Arbery or someone in his family because it's a very close-knit community, or you were involved in social media or in demonstrations. As a result, I think there was more scrutiny placed on potential black jurors just by nature of their community. Georgia trial consultant Denise LaRue told the BBC that while the jury composition looks pretty lopsided, the outcome of the jury process is hard to predict because many white jurors left on the panel would be very concerned about returning a verdict that appeared to be a racist one. I don't think the makeup of the jury means the defense has an easy road ahead. Family members of Arbery expressed outrage at the makeup of the jury. However, Arbery's aunt, Thea Brooks, said she wasn't surprised at the outcome. It's just another injustice that we face daily, she said on MSNBC, adding that she remained hopeful that jurors would be open-minded. Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, told First Coast News that she was very shocked that only one black juror was selected. That was devastating, Cooper Jones said. On November 4th, a white juror in her 40s or 50s was dismissed for undisclosed medical issues. One of the alternate jurors, also white, replaced her. All of the alternate jurors were white. As the proceedings in the trial of the men accused of his murder ramped up, Ahmad Arbery's family visited the site where he was killed. In late October, three busloads of Arbery family members held a vigil at Satilla Drive in the Satilla Shores neighborhood. 
This is where his blood was spilled, one woman in the group said. It's sacred ground right here. Amon's father, Marcus Arbery, and his sisters, Ruby and Diane, had held a vigil at the Glen County Courthouse where they chanted, shouted, sang, and at times cried as the jury selection process got underway. It gets no easier going to where you lost your child at, Marcus Arbery told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I lost my child to three white men. I can't really explain that. I can't tell you what that's like. I'm still mad and I'm still emotional, and I'm going to be like that for the rest of my life. That's something I will never forget, and I will never forgive those three men. The trial of the three men charged in Arbery's death began on November 5th. We'll take a look at the trial in our next episode. The Hate Crime Files podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back next month with a new episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a five-star review at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.